Welcome back, y'all. This is another mini-sode of NBA, the podcast that tries to talk about NBA ship. Mostly, we just talk a lot of shit. I'm your host, Jay Hilas, a.k.a. Luol Dang, a.k.a. John. It's pronounced Salmon. Damn it. Uh, we are back for another mini-sode of NBA. Hope you've been enjoying the episodes that we've been doing to this point, um, where we've been talking about the periods of basketball between when Jordan retired to today. Um, this next week's episode, we'll be covering the 0809 season, as you should know by now. Hopefully, you've caught up on all the last couple of episodes. Before we get to that season, we are going to talk about one of my one of my favorite seasons in recent Bulls memory. Because frankly, I didn't really get to enjoy the Jordan Jordan stuff. I, I enjoyed it like you guys through the last dance. Um, so this week, we have a very special guest here from the Lockdown Bulls podcast and Bulls Outsider. We have Matt Peck. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. Looking forward to it. As am I. More now, arguably, than ever. Um, cool, man. So um, I, I'd like to start the conversation by taking us back to 08. And I want to talk about that draft. Now, at the time, as you can remember, listeners, um, the draft was pretty hotly debated as to who was going to be the number one pick for that draft. Was it to be Derek Rose? Was it to be Mr. Michael Beasley? Now, Matt, I'd like to take you back to that point in time. Um, and Matt, I think you and I are around the same age. So at that time I was in college. Uh, Derek Rose had just taken Memphis to the finals. And I'm thinking, how could you not take the hometown kid? Where was your head at during this time when you found out that the Bulls had the number one pick at in the draft that year? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I was shocked and and so pleasantly surprised when they actually did land that number one pick because be, because you know all of us diehard Bulls fans know we had less than two percent shot um, at that number one pick in the in the lottery that year, um, and so it just seemed like like fate, like like you know Bulls fans in recent years are just sick of drafting number seven over and over again. <clears throat> Maybe that's just us paying our price for the fact that we did get so so lucky in the spring of two thousand and eight because. We had this, uh, you know, this this opportunity to draft the hometown kid, Derrick Rose, and I know that there were a lot of people debating between him and Michael Beasley, uh, you know, who was very impressive at Kansas State. But I'm with you, man. You know, I, I was in college when I watched Derrick Rose's Memphis year, um, and he was so impressive. Like he, he was the most exciting college basketball player that I had seen in a long time at that point. Um, you know, everybody gets excited about the high lottery picks every year. And a lot of those are, are players on big blue chip program collegiate teams. But to me, the the combination of speed and athleticism and finishing ability of Derek that year at Memphis, it was just something special. So to me, I was like, there is no debate. Michael Beasley is a solid player. But Derek Rose, the year he had in Memphis, he led that team all the way to the title game. And uh, and and of of course the the factor of him being a hometown kid, I was like, it's a no brainer. They should take Derrick Rose. I'm glad they did after the Bulls went back and forth on it. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember for the listeners, like at that point in time, like we weren't at the point where we are in the NBA now where there was just like this positionless basketball, like a guy like Michael Beasley at the time was seen as like as a tweener, as a guy who was like between positions, not fast enough and a good enough shooter to play the three, but also like not big enough and strong enough to play the four. So we're not really sure what he is, but we know he's a scorer. Whereas at that point in time, like the, the, the league, and to some extent it still is the truth is it was very point guard driven. It was very scoring point guard forward and, and taking a guy like Derek Rose, despite, even if you take out the Chicago ties, which, 
you know, I, every, everyone who's listened to the podcast knows that I have a very special place in my heart. Uh, Matt, I'm one of those Bulls fans. Um, but I, I grew, I, like Derek and I graduated the same year in high school. And like, I went to go see him play a lot when he was a senior in high school and throughout his high school career, um, whether it be at UIC or DePaul or North Park or wherever the fuck he was. But um, at the time, like, even if you took the Chicago thing out of it, it was just a no brainer. You have this kid who's like clearly a next generation level score as a point guard um, to your point who had led the, the Memphis Tigers to the, to the championship. I mean, he had, he hit his goddamn free throws, you know, we're telling a different story about that year, but in any case, the Bulls pick Derrick Rose um, at the time. It was basically a no brainer. And, um, you know, you can say what you want if we do some revisionist history. But I think some might argue that uh, if you even if you take this draft back to what it was, he's probably still a top four pick in that draft. Um, would you agree with that, Matt? If you look back at that, that 08 draft? Yeah. And I mean, you know, if you include what injuries players have endured with that revisionist history, then maybe some would say, you know, I'll take a pass on the you know, the the comet that was Derrick Rose that burnt out a little bit because for a long time, up until, you know, uh, last season with the tail end with Minnesota and then this season we're having his resurgence with Detroit, a lot of people thought D. Rose's career was essentially done. Like yeah. when he was AWOL with the Knicks, everybody was like, oh, this dude's done. Um, so maybe because of that, people would argue, okay, you would certainly put Westbrook over him. You'd probably put Kevin Love over him. And then, you know, there are a few other players from that class uh, outside of those UCLA teammates that you might make an argument for. I mean, like, you know, Roy Hibbert was on some good Pacers teams, but nothing like close to Derrick Rose. And he fizzled out, too. You got the Lopez brothers, Brooke and, uh, and you know, our old pal Rolo. Uh, I don't think I would put any of those guys above him. The other two that maybe I would throw into the, even the discussion would be Ibaka and Nicholas Batum, who went yeah. 24 and 25. Um, so like, I, you know, I think those guys certainly jump into the top 10, but to suggest that you can, you know, do redo that draft and have the D Rose outside of the top four. No, I don't think so. I think maybe he doesn't go number one overall. Maybe you say Russell Westbrook goes number one overall, and then maybe Kevin Love goes two because of all of Rose's injuries. But yeah, he's still easily a top four player in that draft class. I agree with you. I agree with you. So far, so good, Matt. We are on the same page about Derrick Rose. I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm a, I am a, I am a listener of the podcast, so I know what I'm getting myself into. Um, yeah. So moving on to that rookie season, uh, Derrick Rose is a phenomenal, phenomenal player for the Chicago Bulls. Has a a rookie campaign that, I mean, very few would even try to argue that he didn't win rookie of the year that year. Um, I'm just pulling up his stats here. Probably going to put them up a little bit more prematurely, but here we are. So in that 08 and 09 season, he puts up 17, six with like four rebounds a game um, all while shooting 48% as far as like his effective field goal percentage, 49 from the field. Um, not a great three point shooter. It really didn't become a great, well, great is I'm I'm overblowing it. I'm not that I'm not that much of a D Rose fan. He was a terrible, <laughs> yeah. terrible three point shooter, and then became a passable three point shooter over the last couple of seasons. What what stands out from you from that rookie campaign, and what do you remember from Derrick Rose's rookie season coming to that Bulls team that was just like a couple seasons removed from the baby Bulls seasons? Well, yeah, I mean, what I remember most is just the electricity he put back into the city uh, and among the Bulls fan base. Um, you know, you mentioned the baby Bulls and, you know, the Scott Skiles teams had a couple of fun seasons. You know, they had first round playoff bounces in uh, 2005, uh, 2006, um, and then they, 
you know, shocked everybody and swept the defending champion Heat out of the first round of the playoffs in 2007. And those were some fun times. Those were some good times. But I think mostly Bulls fans never believed that that team was actually going anywhere. Um, right. and, and then it, it fell flat on its face and didn't even make the playoffs. They won 33 games uh, in, in that last Skiles year in 2008 that led them to even get into the lottery with, uh, the, the lottery with those slim uh, odds that they had. So Rose was coming into a, a, his rookie year where the Bulls had gone to the lottery, not made the playoffs, and the, the baby Bulls thing had kind of fizzled out. He rejuvenated that with some of like the the other new talent that that team had, you know, including a young Joakim Noah who came on board. They shifted gears a little bit. You know, they went away from from Tyson and, and Curry and those guys. But they still had this exciting other pieces like the wall and, and Kirk Heinrich. Um, and then they added some other interesting pieces around it. You know, you had John Salmons, the, the veteran leader in Brad Miller. Um, and so as far as that team, I just remember the city getting kind of excited about that team. But it was mostly because of just how insanely good Derrick Rose was. Like he dropped 26 in his third game of his rookie year. And I remember being like, man, this kid can, can play just flat out play. And, he, you know, he was he was dropping 20 point games left and right his entire rookie year. He was just so much fun to watch. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned uh, that uh, Brad Miller being returned to uh, to his home, really, to the Chicago Bulls. To this day, my brother is uh, he's going to be turning 30 in November. Brad Miller is still his favorite player of all time. I don't know if it's ironically or <laughs> if that's how he truly feels. But Brad Miller, we're, uh, we're in the process of writing some blog posts about like who which player or team turned us into the NBA fans we are in today. And uh, he's convinced that he's going to write a very long and heartfelt blog post about Brad Miller. I don't buy it. I don't uh, I don't know how it's going to happen. I uh, I I. I, I I await his his uh, his response to my challenge. Uh, very very and excited. I, t- I tell you what, though, like Brad Miller, he's definitely probably in my top five of like favorite short stint bulls of all time. Because I I I think I still have Nate Robinson at the top of that list for me, just because of that to. one year in uh, you know including his insane performance against the Brooklyn Nets in the playoffs. I love baby Nate, but like, dude, Brad Miller. Like, you know, kind of like a weird journeyman guy. He, you know, if he wasn't on your team, you kind of hated him. He was rough and rugged. He wasn't exactly the most beautiful player to watch. But that one season, uh, and including some of the, the big plays that Brad Miller made in that Boston Celtics series, my God, man, I will always stand for Brad Miller. Well, Matt, you did what we here at NBA like to call a segue alley-oop. Um, we are now going to transition to that very series that you just referred to. Uh, in my opinion, and granted, I'm 31. I'm I'm not young, but I'm not. I haven't seen all of the basketball, um, but I've seen a, a decent period from you know the 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 doldrums that we've been talking about, which are the early to you know early 2000s period uh, till recently. So for the last 20 years, I've been an NBA fan. This to me still strikes me as. Um, Definitely top three, and maybe I'm a little biased. The greatest playoff series ever? Question mark. I don't know, uh, Matt. As you may remember, I I would imagine you remember. This is why I brought you on the podcast. This was a two versus seven seed. The uh, returning NBA champions in the Boston Celtics. I will say a Kevin Garnett less Boston Celtics. He'd only played like 59 games that season. Coming into this right. series. Every, everybody, everybody said sweep, maybe five games, six games at, at like the worst. Um, and your Chicago Bulls 
took the Celtics to seven games. In game one, Derrick Rose drops 36 points, tied for the most by a rookie in his playoff debut. Um, In game six, we go into triple overtime and win that game. Over the six games, uh, there were four overtime games, seven total overtime periods, 61 ties, and 88 lead changes in the series. Uh, Matt, what do you remember about that series? I, again, I think you and I are on the same age. I still remember where I was when Joe Key Noah stole that ball and dunked it. I was working at a gym, and I was cleaning around a treadmill. Well, quote-unquote cleaning. I was doing not much cleaning that day because, fuck it, the Bulls were on. Um, take us there, Matt. <laughs> but take, us, take us to a younger Matt. Where were you? What do you remember about that series? Yeah, so it was actually um, that was the spring semester of my senior year of college. It was April of 2009, and I was looking forward to graduating. But I was actually so like when that when that when that series started on April 18th, I was in my final uh, week of classes, and then there was a study week, and then finals week. So that series was happening while I was getting ready to take my final senior year college exams. Um, And let's just say I spent a lot more time watching that game than I probably should have and a lot less time at the library. Uh, You know, all like, you know, no harm done. Still walked away with a degree, still crossed the stage on graduation date. You know, no harm, no foul. But I remember that game six night in particular, I'm sitting in like the little pub in the basement of one of the buildings on campus and I'm having a few drinks with a couple other people who are just NBA fans that I've you know found on campus who are, you know, somewhat as nerdy about NBA basketball as I am, including a couple of Chicago area people who were Bulls fans. And just watching that game being like, I never want this game to end. Like, I want the Bulls to win this game, but this is some of the most entertaining shit I've ever seen, let alone on a basketball court, and I don't want it to end. Um, and then, of course, you know, Joakim Noah's iconic strip steal of Paul Pierce, the the oh, coast-to-coast oh. dunk, the and one, the foul, the Joakim scream. You know, if you've listened to Locked On Bulls or watched Outsiders or seen my Twitter feed, for for that matter, you know how much of a diehard Joakim fan I am. Um, I mean, I loved every second of that dude in the Bulls jersey. And that was just such an iconic moment. And as you mentioned, like, yeah, that Boston team was without KG with the injury, but they were still the defending champs that had, you know, Rondo and Ray Allen and Pierce and, you know, uh, Perk and Big Baby Davis. They had, you know, the veteran Stephen Mobbery on their bench. Like, if they had Eddie House, who's like one of the most obnoxious NBA players in my life as a Bulls fan who hates the Celtics. I hated Eddie House so much, but that dude knew how to hit some big shots. I think he he dropped like 31 on us in game two or game three, which is like salt in the wound. Fucking salt in the wound. Yeah. I mean, the Eddie House game, not to hell with that. But I mean, that... (laughs) It was just so exciting. As you said, you have seven total overtime periods. Four of the seven games in the series go to an extra period. I just like, you know, you said maybe is, is it one of the greatest playoff series of all time? I don't know about that. I would certainly put it up there. I will say unquestionably probably the greatest first round playoff series of all time. Okay, I'll, I'll concede. I'll concede. Greatest first round series. Just in the sense of like two teams that like you know, more people, a lot more weight is put on one versus eight series where like the, we believe warriors will beat the Mavericks or like the fucking nuggets win in the first round. Like those types of series, I guess the Knicks winning in the first round, I guess the heat doesn't really count in this, in this, the strikes shortened season, but like those types of series for whatever reason (laughs) tend to have a lot more weight, um, 
to them. Um, but like, this is still like a much higher seed versus a much lower seed in a seven game series. And the level of competitiveness, like to your point, like for a first round series, like for the listeners, and we'll go over this in this week's episode, but like the Celtics didn't win the championship that year. I mean, they didn't expect to play seven games, let alone fucking seven overtime periods in the first round. Like that, that tired them going into the, the, the rest of the playoffs and like really, really put the Bulls in, in a new category going into that offseason and like set expectations for this city and for that team moving forward. And I guess that's kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about is like, what do you remember this series doing for what the Bulls and the moves that the Bulls made for the years that came until of, of the unfortunate events of, of 2012? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it got the city really excited to believe in a winner uh, at, uh, at the United Center again. Um, and, you know, at the same time at, at the United Center, the, the Blackhawks were on the up and up. You know, they had gotten Kane and they had gotten Taze and, and the Hawks were on the on the verge of winning their cup and their first cup in, in a bazillion years in 2010, which was a lot of fun for the city of Chicago. But everybody that has lived, you know, in and around Chicago their whole lives knows that because of the Jordan Bulls, like, you know, yeah, the 85 Bears were great, but. After the after that, like maybe you could still argue that it's a Bears town first, and then you know it's and then it's a Bulls town, and then you know baseball yeah. is split, and then hockey was a distant fifth. Um, when the Bulls are good, the city of Chicago goes crazy for them, absolutely crazy for them. And so in this series against Boston, the defending champs, you see this this kid, rookie of the year kid from the South Side of Chicago, as you mentioned, uh, you know an NBA high thirty six points, and his rookie playoff debut he has another game in that series where he goes 23 11 and 9 a near playoff triple double in his first ever playoff series so you're thinking this kid's got the whole package he dropped 28 more 28 8 and 7 in that game six to force a game seven and oh by the way played 59 and a half minutes in that game six like oh, yeah you know, this, is, this, this is pre-tibs People are like, oh, Tim Tom Thibodeau and all this. It's like, dude, no. Vinny Del Negro had his rookie playing 59 minutes in that playoff game. It just got he people was excited, man. Like, yeah. yeah, he had the legs then. He certainly had the legs. But, like, I, oh. I remember thinking that year, like, we might have a talented little talented little team here that could make some noise in, in years to come. And, of course, man, the, the, the Derrick Rose train left hot out of the gate, and this city just fell in love with that kid so fast. He went from a rookie of the year to an all-star in his second season. Buddy, I, I was uh, I was watching, you know, in these times, there isn't much else to watch except for the free content on YouTube. So again, shout out to YouTube. Um, I was watching some games during the, you know, 2010s, the, the aughts, if you will. Uh, and I think I was watching the game where Derrick Rose hit the game winner against the Cavs. And I just kept thinking to myself, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm uh, thinking a little glass half full and, and maybe thinking a little bit nostalgically about those teams. But I just kept thinking to myself, like, how the fuck did we not make it at least to one NBA finals? Like the 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 depth of those teams, the the bench mafia, you know, we had an all-star MVP caliber Derrick Rose, an MVP caliber Joakim Noah, who a lot of people forget about that, like defensive player of the year. And that year that Derrick was out, like he finished top four in the MVP votings. Like this is a guy who was very much a valuable player in the NBA. And I just can't help. It just, it hurts. It hurts, Matt. I think this is, this is what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> I'm getting through it. My therapist yeah. and I talk about it. 
weekly. It hurts. It just really hurts. I'm, I mean, I don't blame you, Jay. It does hurt. Um, I, I just saw something on Twitter earlier today. Uh, you know, some NBA account like, you know, if, if D Rose doesn't, you know, tear the ACL, do the Bulls win a title? People love to talk about the what ifs around that team and that player. Um, it, it's just it's a thing that that NBA fans love to talk about is the what ifs. You know, we just finished this 10 part documentary about the good old days, uh, you know, the the MJ polls. And it's like, well, what if in, in 99, if they brought it back, they run it back. So I think for a younger generation of Bulls fans, the whole question about Derek and the ACL and that team with, you know, as you mentioned, the role players, um, Joe Kim, Luol Deng, um, they they certainly were the closest that the that that organization has gotten since the MJ dynasty broke up. And I did think that they were going to win at least a title uh, before Derek tore his ACL. I think that uh, it just seemed like I believed I was. So I was at game one of the Eastern Conference Finals in 2011 when they blew the heat out by like 20. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to win the championship this year. Like, fuck, <laughs> like, fuck the Heatles. Like, th- this is our time. We've got the MVP. Like, fuck LeBron. Fuck Wade. Uh, and I was so convinced after game one of that 2011 conference finals that we were winning the title. And then I was reminded that, man, LeBron James is really good at basketball. Uh, and so is Dwayne Wade. And so is Chris Bosh. That was a damn good Heat team. And then I, you know, I, I wanted to believe in 2012, coming into that season's playoffs, that we had another shot. I didn't love the the minimal, you know, changes to the roster. You know, like they added Rip Hamilton, who was an old vet. He was injury plagued. Like th- everybody wants to say that the Bulls were actually better than the Heat that following year, um, in in 2011-12. I'm sorry, as as much as I will nitpick about LeBron and and people who say that he's the greatest of all time over MJ just got a nice dose of of last dance in their faces that hopefully shuts them up for a while but guess what I was still taking the team that had LeBron over the team that had Derrick Rose when it came down to a best of seven series I hate to say that but that's the one thing that I've always been hung up on on whether or not that team wins a title if Derrick doesn't get hurt you're right you're right if I can a guy can dream or fantasize, or remember in a way that makes him happy. Um, in any case, you did bring up the injury of 2012. Um, and that, of course, as the listeners know, uh, spoiler alert, pretty much ended what was uh, an opportunity for the Bulls to make a championship run. The question I had for you, Matt, is um, Derek Rose was, you know, the, the 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 rose that grew from cement and, and this hometown kid and a great story and youngest MVP in league history. Uh, and then had this catastrophic injury that then led to a period there where he really fell out of favor with fans in Chicago. And I think a lot of people, I think they just wear pun intended rose colored glasses when they think about Derek. Um, what do you remember about that period? And why did Derek fall so much out of, out of sorts with, with Chicago as a city? I think it's a combination of things. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, uh, I don't think the organization did him any favors. I don't think the organization did him any favors from day one when he came in as a kid and really didn't know the first thing about how to take care of your body in the NBA. Um, things like, you know, oh, I'm going to eat Skittles for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's like, nah, dude, like you're an NBA player. You should probably have yourself a diet, get yourself a nutritionist. Um and then between that and, of course, the the fatigue factor of the kind of 
play that he you know was was out there playing on the court every night. His style of play put so much pressure on on his like tight, compact little body that I think eventually those things were going to start cropping up and become a problem. And then of course the tipping point was that lockout shortened season where they condensed as much of a full season schedule into a much shorter amount of time. Uh, then was ideal, and then that led to the initial injury and then subsequent ones. But as far as him falling out of favor, he said some things. He said some things this city did not take kindly to. Um, this is a blue-collar sports city, and we like the nitty-gritty. You know, when Joakim Noah says something like, you know, I play for the guy who can only afford to go to one game a year, and he's up in the nosebleeds, you know, at the back end of the, the 300 level, that's who I'm playing for. And, and Chicagoans hear that and say, hell fucking yeah. That's the guy I want, um, you know. But like uh, Bulls fans right now are sick of that kind of talk because you know Jim Boylan keeps saying Bulls across the chest <laughs> while we're losing, you know, yeah. games by twenty points every night. But there are yeah, the whole standard time card thing is getting a little old. Oh my god, it's a joke. But it's like okay, th- but that is like shtick as opposed to actually doing it for real. You know, walking the walk, not just talking 100%. the talk. Derek said the stuff about like, oh, you know, well, I'm resting because I'm not just concerned about tomorrow night's game or next month's games. I'm concerned about like having sore knees when I'm watching my kid walk across the stage at graduation. Shout out graduations again. Um, (laughs) And and then I think the one that even more so than that, which I think was just like Derek with some stupid word vomit because he's never been great with the media is when he he came into media day, and I think it was like that 14-15 season, and started talking about the big paychecks that were getting thrown around the league. And like, yeah, I'm certainly looking to get paid. Like, I got one eye on that, even though he still had a year left on his max contract. And media and the fans in Chicago were sitting here saying, wait, hold on, timeout. You've been rehabbing these various injuries for how long now? We've seen you play a grand total of what, like 10 games over the past two seasons? And you come in and you start talking about money? What the hell is that? And again, I don't fault Rose entirely for that. I think he was probably then, like many times in his career, especially early on when he was not comfortable with the media, following the advice of those around him and speaking other people's words. And that got him in trouble a lot. It got him in trouble time and again. And I think it was unfortunate for Derek that he just never really felt comfortable with the media because things he said to the media got twisted and misconstrued in a lot of different ways. And the fan base started to resent him for it and not like him for it. And coupling that with not playing and not producing, I don't care if you, you know, I don't care if you, your entire family, you're like, as far as all of your connections to the city of Chicago, state titles of Simeon, none of that matters. If the fan base wants winners now and you're not playing and you're asking to get paid, that's why all that, fell apart pretty quickly yeah thanks reggie um in any case i yeah, didn't it's, say uh, reggie's name specifically <laughs> i was just you know in general terms on this podcast we read between the lines we pull out the information that we want or the information that we need to push a narrative and the narrative is thanks reggie um <laughs> in any case um it's uh no i completely agree with you and i think like as as a guy at the time who just felt like um, player before organization and, and felt the need to like really support a guy who is the same age as me, who went through the same Chicago public school system that I did, like, you know, grew up in the same city. Well, not the same, same city. Like he grew up very much on the South side and I very much grew up on the North side, but um, nonetheless, like, you know, I, I felt a, a sense of, of almost like 
protection, like almost like a, a younger, older brother relationship um, with Derek. However, that makes any fucking sense because I'm like five, six. But in any case, uh, and it like it just got harder and harder over time to defend the shit that he was doing and the shit that he was saying. And 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 to your point, I don't think that the that the team did him any favors when they were outwardly saying like doctors approved him now. Everyone who's paid attention to the Bulls over the last couple seasons knows that the Chicago Bulls medical staff is a fucking joke. Um, so, like, it's it's it makes sense to be skeptical of, a, of an organization that, like, historically, like, almost fucking paralyzed Luol Deng, let's not forget. Like, you know, the types of shit that they did throughout that period, like, it was easy to assume that, like, Derrick Rose was doing the right things for his body. But, you know, the, the media and, and the front office was coming out saying we've already gotten the check marks and checked all the boxes. Like it's on him now. It, it didn't do him a favor, but um, anyways, I, I think to your point, like there's a lot to unpack there and a lot of fingers to point at a lot of different people. Um, fortunately, those people aren't here anymore. Well, most of them, um, the ones that we cared to get out of here, <laughs> I should say. Um, so, um, and God, we are, there's a there's a flow here, Matt. There's a flow here. Um, I don't know if you I don't know if you went through the rundown, but we've got a nice little there's a nice little another nice little segue here. Um, those people that we didn't like that were talking shit about Derek or, or putting him in a position to defend himself, they're gone. And there is a new regime here in Chicago in AK and Mark Eversley. And I have to ask you, Matt, A, how excited are you on a scale of one to ten? Uh, you know what? One to 23. Shout out to Jordan. Um, and more importantly, what would you like to see them do over this first season in their new positions? Well, um, on a scale to your first question of one to 23, how excited am I? I'm a fucking 25, man. I mean, let's do it. Uh, I, I have been waiting and waiting and waiting bitterly, cynically, pessimistically for years for the Reinsdorfs to wake the fuck up and realize the change was needed. And it turns out that they needed a little boost. They needed a little help from John Paxton, who, according to all reports from trustworthy sources, is the one who went into Michael Reinsdorf's office and said, yeah, this ain't working. You got to let me fire myself. That's what it (laughs) took, which is why for so long, I was like when people kept saying, you know, hashtag Fargar Pax, we got to do this. We got a fresh start. We need to get these people out. I'm like, hey, I'll believe it when I see it. When we started to hear rumors earlier this season that, hey, if this Jim Boylan thing doesn't work out, if this season doesn't work out, there could be changes on the horizon. And I was in there saying, uh-huh, I'll believe it when I see it. 17 years of the same regime, and you know, you'll forgive me for not having faith that change was on the way. Lo and behold, uh, I think the, the nail in the coffin is that the Bulls realized that they were hosting All-Star Weekend for the first time since 1988 in this once proud basketball city and had dick to show for themselves. No, no Zach Levine all-star selection. No, nothing. You're, you're a team that's 20 games under 500 at the all-star break. Your organization at this point is only making headline national news stories for the laughing stock that it has become when your head coach is getting trolled, when other lottery bound teams are trolling your team, you know, running off the floor with win- wins at the United Center. You know, uh, play, player mutinies, these kinds of things is what's getting attention. Oh, and by the way, uh, the United Center is half empty every night and your ratings are tanking. That was the state of the Bulls when All-Star Weekend came to Chicago. And thank God that that's how bad it was. Because if it wasn't that bad, I'm not sure that we would have gotten these changes. And as yeah, for what I I'd agree. like to see them do differently, everything. Take what they <laughs> did over the last few years 
evaluate what's here, evaluate your assets, and then do the opposite of what they have done, uh, which is value players first, put player development at the forefront of this rebuild because we got all this young talent and all of them essentially regressed this year. Uh, you know, except for, you know, shout out Kobe White, who had that amazing stretch right before the the league was, uh, you know, put on indefinite pause. But like Zach Levine was, you know, maybe a little bit better, but pretty much the same player. Everybody else on that roster, in my opinion, stayed the same or got worse. So Eversley and AK have both said players first, players forward. This is about player development and putting players in positions to succeed. The Bulls have been doing the opposite of that for years, and I'm excited for this new regime to start finally doing that. Do you are there any players on the current Bulls roster that in your mind are untouchable? No. Not a one. Fair. Fair. Um look, I I really liked what I saw from Kobe White. Um you know, he struggled. People were clamoring for him to start from day one. And I was like, look at this kid. He's clearly struggling. Even before he hit the rookie wall, his shooting percentages were not that great. And then whatever it was, a little bit of confidence, a little bit more experience. He got past that rookie wall. He started playing lights out. And I really got excited about Kobe. And I would like to see him stick around to see what he could become. I think Zach Levine is on one of the most team-friendly contracts in the NBA right now when you compare cost to production. I mean, he was averaging like, you know, 25, like uh, 25, five and four, basically. That's a pretty darn good value for a guy making less than $20 million. So because of that, he's probably the most valuable trade piece they have right now. Um, But none of the Bulls struggles this past season, I am putting at the feet of Zach Levine. That dude was a warrior and a half through a bunch of bullshit. And honestly, the thing that I was most upset about this season was the regression of Lowry Markkinen. Because when we made that trade for Jimmy Butler and halfway through that season, and then even when we saw Levine come back from his ACL, after Lowry's rookie season, I was like, oh, this kid could be special. I thought he had the highest ceiling of anybody in that trade. And uh, man, I I hope that, that Eversley... AK, their coaching staff, which will hopefully consist of a new head coach and a, a few other pieces, can fix whatever Jim Boylan broke about Lowry. And yeah, some of it's on Lowry to put the work in himself to get better. But all that is to say, there are some pieces I like on this roster. None of them, in my opinion, are untouchable. Yeah. I also say uh, for the Bulls front office, maybe add like one more uh like uh de- co- developmental coach um and make his name not Jim Boylan that would be my recommendation or request if i can make one no i agree with you i think we like for the Jim listeners Paxson, the new development coach <laughs> oh god let's uh let's <laughs> don't even joke about that man once you put that shit on wax <laughs> it's we got tr- we got trouble or brewing um no i agree with you i think um for the listeners who have listened to this podcast over time about three weeks ago, we came to a conclusion that when you break down the numbers and when you really look at it, Zach Levine had a borderline all-star caliber season uh, from a statistical standpoint um, this season. But when you really look at his numbers across the board, he, and maybe you've already come to this conclusion, Matt, but we we did some uh, basketball reference comparisons. Can you guess the player that Zach Levine most resembles from a career standpoint up to this point? Uh, You mean a player whose career has already been completed or... Um, yes, player that's been, uh, yes, career that's already been completed. Oh man, I, I'm afraid to guess because I don't want to insult Zach by like guessing somebody who was kind of just like a borderline player but never quite an all star. 
Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. All right, I'll, give, I'll, I'll kill the suspense. Yeah. It was Monta Ellis. It oh, Monta Ellis, man. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. We broke down the stats uh, a couple episodes ago, and they are eerily similar. Now, I've been having conversations with some of my friends through a text thread about what we should do with Zach Levine. I am with you in the sense that I see him more as a valuable trade ship for a team that can um, overshadow his inefficiencies as an NBA player um, with far more efficient players around him. And I think at this point, you know, with two years left on his contract, we probably let this season play out. And then in 2021, or pardon me, 2022, probably look for the best suitor or depending on how 2021 goes, see what's out there. If we can get a first round pick and maybe a valuable asset, um, that to me is probably the best direction for Zach Levine for the future. Um, my friends vehemently oppo- are opposed to that. Would are, Is that kind of the, 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 the camp that you're in is let's find the most valuable trade for Zach Levine. Or are you in more of a, let's see how this rebuild and, and kind of continually rebuilding process goes. And let's see if Zach can kind of fit into that. I mean, I, I would say that I'm probably somewhere in between those two uh, stances. I, I'm not like vehemently like demanding that we trade Zach Levine immediately as like the first move this new front office makes because he is the most tradable asset we have right now with two years left on that such a team-friendly deal. Um, he is an incredibly talented scorer. And we did see him put forth a little bit more effort and a little bit more production on the defensive side of the ball this year. He's still not great on the defensive end, but he did, to his credit, get better. The one issue that I still have with Zach, and I think this might be the like the the X factor when it comes to this new regime and deciding whether or not to keep Zach and trying to build not necessarily around him, but with him or move on from him is the decision-making and the court vision on the offensive end. Um, Mm -hmm. To his credit, he had some games this season where he was dishing out seven, eight, nine assists, but that was the irregularity, not the regularity. I still don't think, I, I still think he's much more of a, lock in, beat my man off the dribble and and knock down shots, create my own shots and knock them down, drive to the basket, score at the basket kind of player than he is in a system. And you could suggest that to some degree, that is why the Bulls offensive system this season did not go so well. Um, I don't think he's like this, oh, black hole, you know, ghost a player who he doesn't make his teammates better kind of thing like some of the other slander you hear about Zach on NBA Twitter I think a lot of that's way too harsh and I think people don't give him enough credit for the talent that he does have however based on what we've heard from Karnaschovas and from Eversley about the kind of basketball they might be looking to put in place Zach doesn't exactly match what they are talking about doing with his skill set so if there is a solid trade on the table where I could look at it and say, I think we're getting good value for Zach here and these pieces more, you know, uh, align themselves with what the new regime is trying to accomplish, like basketball schematics wise, I'd be okay with it. At the same time, I don't want to, you know, rush into trade Zach Levine just to trade Zach Levine. Yeah, no, I'm here for that. I think, uh, and I, I kind of sit in the same place. I think to your point, I think I see him more as the most tradable asset than like a crucial building block of, of what's to come. And look, that could change signs are, I mean, all, all signs point to this draft being pretty shit. Um, and 
like where's Stratford cash? Like from a salary perspective, like we got Otto Porter on the books. We've got Felicia on the books. We got Zach Levine in the books. Like there's not much wiggle room on this team. Maybe some MLE guys that we, you know, bring off a of free agency, but there's not really much to be done. The roster that we have is the roster that we have. So, um, and also like, I would also say too, like I, I agree with you and like the development of, of Lori Markin has been heavily disappointing considering his rookie campaign. And like Kobe white was, it had a, had a, he had a rookie season. Like he had a very rookie season. He had the ups and downs. It was a nice uh, flash of, of what he can do towards the end of the season, towards that stretch there. Um, I'm actually a, the biggest fan of Wendell Carter Jr. But at the same time, I recognize like his style of play is kind of obsolete in the NBA today. Like I really do love what he's, what he's able to bring. And, you know, he showed flashes of being a guy who could really stretch the floor in college. And maybe the, the next, hopefully the next, uh, Chicago Bulls coach will will bring that out of him, and we be, we'll be able to build out that uh, that range a little bit further than you know the elbows are a little bit further than the mid range. But yeah, I I, uh, I agree with you. I think it's I would urge the listeners and the the Chicago Bulls fans out there uh, exercise patience. It's gonna be a while. We got a lot of we got a lot of money on the books, and and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, I have one more. Let's call it one and a half more questions for you. And this is going to be a rapid fire question, Matt. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Question number one. These are rapid fire. I want you to rank them from first to worst. The baby bulls, the three alphas, or the current Boylan's bulls? First Ooh. to worst. Oh, uh, first being best now, and then worst. I, I, okay. I want uh, to say like first to worst. I want to I want to say first to worst in the feeling that these teams give you. The, okay. the the feeling that you have towards them let's let's remove record from the from the the case because that makes it a lot easier i want to know the matt peck emotional uh, uh uh radar the emotional uh score that you put on those three teams okay i dig it uh first baby bulls easy second 100 hard, hard to believe maybe the jim boylan bulls of today wow worst, <laughs> worst the three alphas bulls that season oh, was boy. the stupidest piece of shit season. I and I endured like the 98 to 03 post dynasty Krause years. Those were some dark dark years, my friend. And I hated that 3 alpha season more than anything. What what does Gar Foreman when back when he was still allowed to talk to the media say? We're going to get younger. We're going to get more athletic. We're going to build a nice young <laughs> core. We're going to maybe add some shooters around Jimmy Butler, this rising star. And they sign the AARP duo of Wade and Rondo. Man, really? that, that still uh, frosts <laughs> my chaps, man. I, I, uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was going out to dinner that night, uh, the night that they signed Rondo. I was going out to dinner with my girlfriend and her brother and his fiance, and, and we're waiting to get our seats. And I'm on my phone checking Twitter as I do. And uh, everybody's chatting, and there's like a little lulling conversation, and then I get a Woj bomb—the saddest Woj bomb that I've ever heard in my life—and and I find out that the Bulls, after <laughs> saying that they were going to get younger and faster, go out and sign Rajon Rondo, and I basically just like slunk down in my seat, and my girlfriend goes, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "No, the world is ending. The Bulls are terrible. I can't take it. I'm not even hungry anymore." And it basically ruined my dinner. So thank you, Gar Foreman, for ruining my dinner. Uh, it, it ruined my night. It ruined, it absolutely ruined my night. I was basically a shell, a shell of myself for like two and a half hours. Uh, it's a terrible impression on my, on my, my girlfriend's brother and, and his fiance, but it hey, wasn't man, my fault. I understand. It was Gar's fault. I, it, yes, it was absolutely Gar's fault. It, I mean, just All so, right. so stupid, man. So stupid. Just so dumb. Now, 
playoff Rondo was fun. Playoff Rondo was fun. That series against the Celtics, I will I will admit, was enjoyable and entertaining. Um, but so fucking stupid. Just and I agree I, with that list wholeheartedly. Those Bulls fans who were like, hey man, like if Rondo doesn't hurt the thumb, like who like they were winning that series, who knows what's gonna happen? <laughs> Stop. Stop. I tell that's Bulls worse. fans who make that argument to me. Stop. It's it's, it's ridiculous. That's a, oh my god. I had so many friends who had the same opinion. And I was like, bro, that is so much worse. Right. The fact that we're doing this well in the first round is so bad because everybody knows this is not sustainable. It's not good basketball. And if they win, right. then the front office is going to be like, all right, fucking run it again. Like, yeah. oh my god, it's just so fucking and stupid. Like, hey, so dumb. if if a if a sprained thumb for an eight from an eighty year old Rondo is what separates your collective team from being competitive in the playoffs and then losing the next four and getting swept out of those playoffs, then you didn't really build yourself a great team there, did you? No, so stupid. All right, one more first to worst. Are you ready, Matt? Ready for it. Scott Skiles, Vinny Del Negro, Jim Boylan. First to worst. Oh, God. Um. Oh, man, this is tough. Um. Okay. I got to go Skiles first. He did some solid things with okay. those baby pulls. And, sure, sure. And, and then VDN, and I'm giving him second place because he got up in John Paxson's grill one time, and I very much appreciate that. <laughs> and and then and I'm sorry to rank him last because he is a nice guy, and I do really enjoy uh, when our paths cross, or, or at least the last time they did uh, before the season went to shit, but I am putting Jim Boyle in third. I don't disagree with that. We are we are in we are in uh, we are in the same opinion as it pertains to those two lists. And frankly, they coincide pretty well. Baby Bull, Scott Skyle, Vinzel Nagel, three alphas. Although the three alphas was uh, was a Fred Hoiberg team. Um, I guess I should have put Hoiberg on that didn't list. You, didn't even it, include Freddie in the list. I, <laughs> I just totally forgot him. I just I I'd rather forget. Yeah. What do you want me to say? Hey man, I just I, rather I had I had two I had two nicknames for Fred during his tenure as the Bulls head coach, Milk Toast and Ned Flanders. So it's, <laughs> it's not surprising that you forgot that that dude was this team's head coach for a while. That dude was dull. Like listening to Fred terrible. talk was like watching paint dry, man. Fred made me see red. Shout out to see red Fred. Um, man. well, Matt, that's all I have for today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can find what you're working on. If you're working on anything special, this is the opportunity to plug it. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter, Bulls underscore Peck. Um, Jordan and I are still doing uh, four or five episodes a week of Locked On Bulls uh, for the Locked On Podcast Network. Uh, you know, we're obviously doing we were doing a lot of stuff about the last dance. Now that that's over, we're going to get into some more season uh, player grades and evaluations and then look ahead to this draft. Uh, and who knows? We might get some, some Bulls regular season games uh, on the horizon to finish out the season or at least part of it. I, personally, I'd be OK if we're just done for the year. Um, oh, fuck. Yeah, dude. I'm honestly like I, I don't want to see any more Bulls basketball. I'm definitely I'm done watching that. I've actually for the listeners, I think I mentioned oh, no, I haven't mentioned this yet. So this is uh, this is breaking news, I guess. Um, I am rewatching the entire Bulls seasons and I'm going to chronicle it oh uh, in some blog posts. Why are you um, doing that to yourself? Why? <laughs> I don't have anything else to watch, Matt. Okay. I'm tired of <laughs> mid-range basketball. There's just so there's so much the grainy footage on YouTube. It's 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 terrible. There's nothing I to understand. watch. I understand. 
I don't know what there's, else to do. There's some NBA greatness uh, <laughs> on YouTube, but a lot of it's in standard definition, and I, I understand. This is it's it's really tough. It's really <laughs> tough. Um, but yes, uh, for the listeners, definitely check down the Locked On Bulls podcast. Um, Jordan and Matt are great. I've been a longtime listener, um, and some of the best news, uh, Bulls related news that you'll get um, really on the entire internet and in all of of podcastum, uh, if you will. Um, Oh, for me, uh, if you haven't already, make sure and check out supportchicagobars.com. Um, we are starting, today is starting our Lakeview versus Lincoln Park tournament. Uh, Matt, maybe you're, maybe you're unaware. Um, friends, some friends and I started supportchicagobars.com to help bring awareness and raise money to bars locally. So we're basically just promoting their GoFundMe. It's a, uh, it's a March Madness style bracket. And uh, everybody here, if you've been to Chicago, if you live in Chicago, if you're like, ah, oh, one time I want to, uh, maybe in the future I'll go to Chicago, support chicagobars.com. Um, you can follow me at J underscore Keyless on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow MBA at MBA Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, again, we'll be creating some content at mba.substack.com. Um, all right. Well, for Matt, for Jay, this has been MBA. 